Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. In today's episode, Satyan sits down with Bapu Jenna, an economist, physician, and professor at Harvard Medical School. He bridges his professions to explore the economics of healthcare productivity and medical innovation. Bapu is also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and practices medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. In this episode, Bapu and Satyan discuss leveraging data in healthcare, applying AI in medicine, and measuring the productivity and innovation of doctors. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Successful companies make data-driven decisions at the right time, quickly, by combining the brilliance of their people with the power of their data. See why thousands of business and data leaders embrace Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Anupam Bapu Jena is a physician, economist, researcher, and Harvard Medical School professor. His research spans health economics and policy, including physician behavior and workforce economics, medical malpractice, and innovation. He's the author of the recent book, Random Acts of Medicine, and is the host of Freakonomics MD podcast, which delves into the hidden aspects of healthcare. Dr. Jenna Bapu, welcome to Data Radicals. Thank you for having me. Well, since you have recently published the book, why don't we dive in and start there? Tell us about the book and what motivated you to write it. So a book is about a lot of my research over the last 10 years or so, and the title is Random Acts of Medicine. And what it's about is about how chance occurrences, chance events impact our health, our lives, and then what we can learn about it. So I tell the story of a guy I met recently, that's about a month ago now, who met his wife at the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. And so it's a totally random thing. He was in line for about two hours, met this person who he ended up marrying. And that's a like a totally random thing. You would not tell your son or daughter that this is actionable, but this is a way that you can meet your future soulmate is to go to the DMV, right? And same thing, kind of random things happen in health all the time. People are hit by cars or environmental disasters or cancer without any risk factors. And in in those settings, it's also sometimes not actionable. We can't learn anything from it. But this book is about a bunch of random events that impact our lives, our health, where we can actually learn something about in terms of what makes healthcare work or doesn't work. And so this sounds a lot like, I don't know if you've seen that Gwyneth Paltrow movie, Slanted Doors, like there's one avenue of chance and then there's another avenue of chance and your life is totally different based upon these two totally idiosyncratic events. But if they're that idiosyncratic and that sort of chaotic, then is what you're talking about sort of that random or are these random in instance, but predictable across a population? Yeah, I think that they're the latter. I mean, they're random in the sense that any given person who's exposed to it And I'll give you an example in a moment, but any given person who's exposed to some random event, it's random to them, but it is predictable. And a large part of the book is this idea that if we know what to look for, we can identify these sorts of occurrences all the time and we can learn something from them. So one of the chapters in the book is about marathons and mortality, and it recounts the story of my wife who ran this race years ago, which started in one part of Boston and then went past Mass General Hospital, which is where I work. And she asked me to watch her on the race route. So I tried to park at the hospital to do that. But I couldn't get to the hospital because the roads were blocked that day and they were blocked because of the race. And so I mentioned this to her hours later and she says to me, well, what happened to everybody that needed to get to the hospital? And then fast forward several months, we had a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that people who happen to live along marathon routes have higher cardiac mortality during the dates of marathons 
because people can't get to the hospital. And that's random. It, it is random whether you have a cardiac arrest on the day a marathon is being held near your home. But it tells us something about how delays in care and infrastructure setups can have impacts on our health. Yeah, and there's kind of a corollary to that, right? I think there were studies or have been studies, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been studies where people who live in rural areas farther from healthcare have much higher incidence of mortality or casualty than people who live close to hospitals. So, so yeah. that stands to reason. I mean, distance would be one of those things. During COVID, one of the things that you know struck us, my wife's also a physician, is that you really wouldn't want to get sick during the times where COVID was at a peak because the hospital system would also be at a huge surge. And so if you had something that might not be immediately actionable or totally er emergent, or even if you did, maybe that wouldn't be a, a time to get care. D did you see this in your work? Like, how did you actually come up with the idea for this book? You know, as you were practicing medicine, did you see these random acts actually affect how you provided care or your ability to provide care? All the time. I mean, a lot of the chapters come from things that I've seen in the hospital or out of the hospital caring for patients or things that either I or family friends or family members have experienced. And in your case in particular, we've actually looked at this question. It's hard to study, but the question of how busy a hospital is and what impact that has on your outcomes. Because if you fall, you, let's say you're running outside and you slip up on some ice or you hit the curb wrong, you don't do that knowing that on that particular day, the hospital could be incredibly busy for whatever reason versus another day where it might be less busy. And so you are, by chance, exposed to hospitals that have varying levels of capacity on any given day, and that allows you to learn something about how, well, if a hospital is really busy, does that lead to worse outcomes? And it seems intuitive that it might, but there's also situations where being busy might actually lead to better outcomes if it means that there's certain things that we will sometimes do in the hospital that are harmful to patients. And when the hospital is really busy, they might not do those things because they have to prioritize. And so it could be that for some people, they actually do better when the hospital is busy. Oh, interesting. And they do better when the hospital is busy because... Yeah. So let me give you an example from the book and it, it'll kind of spell it out. So there's a chapter in the book that's titled, What Happens When All the Cardiologists Leave Town? And the basic finding is that during the dates of major cardiology conferences, when the number of cardiologists who are in a hospital might decrease because cardiologists are at these big international meetings like the American Heart Association meeting, you might think that care would get worse in the hospital that day or those days because the balance between the acuity and number of patients who are coming with cardiac problems and the staffing or skill or expertise of the cardiologists who remain behind might not be optimal compared to the rest of the year. So you would think that outcomes get worse. Mm -hmm. And what we find actually is that outcomes are quite a bit better. They're actually a lot better. And what we show is that rates of certain procedures fall by about 30% on the days of those meetings. What it means is that during the rest of the year, there are instances and there are people that we are intervening on who we think it's a black and white decision. We think that this person will benefit from this procedure. But what this sort of analysis tells us is that, you know what, actually this person, the risks outweigh the benefits. Because there's a lot of things in medicine that are black and white. You know you have to do it. But then there's an enormous area where it's actually quite gray and you don't know whether you should do something or not, but you kind of operate under the assumption that more is generally better. And that sometimes is the case, but it's not always the case. In that example, as an economist, I think about incentives. And it would strike me that the incentive structure is to, in general, in medicine, especially if you're procedure-based, do more procedures, frankly. 
And so there's a financial reward. Did you extend the work to prove or disprove? Or do you have any hypotheses around whether or not that is actually true? Yeah. So two thoughts on that. One is we primarily look at teaching hospitals for two reasons. One is in teaching hospitals, many of the people who are working there are the types who would go to these meetings in the first place. So that's a, a place that you would want to look for this sort of effect if it exists. The second thing is in many teaching hospitals, the way that doctors are paid is often different than outside of a teaching hospital. Outside of a teaching hospital, you might see a more fee-for-service environment where the incentives are such that you do more, you get paid more. And that does happen in teaching hospitals, but it's much, much more attenuated compared to that. But the general question, though, of how much we see in medicine is because of financial incentives. My assessment is that I think that we spend a lot of time talking about financial incentives, but they're not really as important as we think they are. And we talk about them because it makes sense, right? It makes sense that if you pay someone more to do something, they will do more of it. And if you can't measure the quality of what's going on or the need for that procedure, you would expect to see more of it. It's just like when I went to the car repair shop the other day, I got a huge list of things that I had to do. And maybe I needed them, maybe I didn't, but I have no idea one way or the other. But the shop does get paid for those things. In medicine, it's a little bit different though, because doctors take an oath to practice in certain ways. And empirically, if you just look at places and environments where doctors are paid fee-for-service versus not, or when fees increase for certain procedures, you do see a little bit of an increase, but it's you're missing the force from the trees. Most of the variation is not driven by the way that doctors are paid. It's driven mostly by just differences in their practice styles. Some doctors are very invasive, others are not. Some doctors are risk-averse, others are not. Given the data that you just mentioned, it strikes me though that on average, there's a bias towards action where action is then defined as sort of a procedure. And in some ways that makes sense because if you've got a hammer, then you use it. And I would imagine that these physicians are trained in a particular way to use those skills. Is that how you would explain it? Or do you think there's another explanation for, because I mean, if you look out on the face of it, right on the face of this, it's like, well, just like, let's have less procedures, or at least let's figure out the criteria so that we can up the bar for when a procedure is recommended. That's a great point and several thoughts there. So one is that the analogy that we give in the book is the analogy of a soccer goalie who is deciding whether to stay in position or go left or go right when there's a penalty kick. And if you look at the data, what they often do is go one way or the other because they feel like they have to act. And sometimes the best thing is just actually to stay put because the ball often goes right up the middle. Now, that is sort of an endogenous decision. This is going to chicken and egg problem. But there is a human tendency to always want to do something, in part because if someone is doing poorly in front of you, if you don't do anything, what would you have to say at the end if something goes wrong? Oh, I didn't think I should do anything. And by the way, this person did poorly. That's not a good place to be in defensively. So I think there's often a desire to try to do more than less. And this is a place where data can be helpful. And we see guidelines that try to say, what are the areas that we should do certain things versus not? But those guidelines are just sort of very aggregate in nature. They're not specific to any given person. And there is where I think the art of medicine sort of comes in. It's like, all right, look, I've seen this problem happen before. Maybe I shouldn't do a procedure in this type of person. This bias towards action is fairly interesting because you can see it being true and to your point, like if you're a mechanic, you might prescribe more services. And I don't know, if you're a lawyer, you might prescribe more contracts to be written because both forget about the economic incentives, although you know that there could be mild influences there. It sounds like there's also this mild influence in just what you know and what you're willing to therefore recommend. Have you seen this pattern emerge in other parts of medicine and of your work? 
Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of work that looks at variation in, in how physicians practice. And I'll give you two data points which are interesting to me. So one is a data point with respect to the intensity of care. So if you look at people who come to the hospital, the way that patients are assigned to doctors in the hospital is as, as good as random. If you come on a Monday, you get Tony. If you come on Tuesday, you get Lisa. If you come on Wednesday, you get Chris. And you come on Thursday, you get Christine. And it's pretty random. And what that does for us is it allows us to see two things. One is how much variation is there in the way that doctors practice that is a function of their practice style, not a function of the types of patients that they see. Because some doctors will have very invasive care or intense spending or intense care on patients, but that's because their patients are sicker and they need that. So we got to sidestep that problem somehow. And the way we do that is by finding situations where people are as good as randomly assigned to different doctors. That tells us something about their practice styles. And we see enormous variation, 30 to 40% difference between the same types of doctors in the same hospital. So a, an inpatient doctor in one hospital might have a colleague that spends 40% more on similar procedures. The other work that we've done, which is another data point, is in opioids. We see that in the same emergency department, again, where people are essentially randomized to the emergency doctor who happens to see them, if you go and see one physician, the likelihood that you walk out with an opioid prescription is 5%. If you see a different physician, it's 25%. So huge variation there. Now, what is that driving that variation? That's hard to say. There is some work that suggests that things like risk aversion matter. So in the case of spending, doctors might just be risk averse. It's not that they get any benefit from spending more, but they're just averse to missing something. If they don't get a CT scan, if they don't get an MRI, if they don't get some additional labs, if they don't keep the person in the hospital an additional day, I'd call that risk aversion as a driver. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And so I mean, these are all pretty inter interesting phenomena because, I mean, you have a unique perch in that you understand the medicine and you also understand sort of the systems that economists are naturally intended to study. How much of your time do you spend in your work doing the work versus actually analyzing, thinking about these trends of phenomena? Are you doing clinical medicine a lot? or It's evolved over time. You know, when I was a resident, a trainee, I was in the hospital all the time. We were working 80 hours a week for several years. And then in the first few years after residency training, I was probably working about 25% of my time clinical, seeing patients, and it's fallen since then. But I still see patients now, but I work only in the inpatient setting. So I don't see patients in an outpatient setting like a, a primary care doctor. The types of people that I would see are people who are hospitalized for something like pneumonia or heart failure, other infections, other general medical conditions, but that are acute enough that they require hospital care. Those are the types of people that I would see. Yeah. And I would imagine that this work would allow you to also have a view on how medicine is practiced more globally and thinking about protocols and differentials for diagnoses, where and how are you able to apply that work and tell us a little bit more about that? I think two areas. So one is just a general observation that I've had in more recently is that in medicine, we focus a lot on things like cost of care, how expensive is it to get a certain medication, to see a doctor, get a procedure. We think about things like access. So do people have insurance that would allow them to do those things? Are the types of providers they need to see accessible to them, depending on where they live? Those are things we talk about. One thing that we don't spend a lot of time talking about, though, is the time that's required. Many visits these days, the average is like 17 to 20 minutes. And that might be fine if you've got a runny nose, but it's not fine if you've got a fever and weight loss for three months. And there, there are a lot of situations where minutes are not sufficient 
to A, arrive at a diagnosis and B, make someone feel comfortable that you're doing everything that needs to be done to understand what's going on and explain everything to them. I mean, that could take hours. Yeah. But how often do we see a doctor and a patient spending hours together? And a, a large problem with that is that's a function of our system. So that's the first thing that I've been thinking more about on the practice side. The other thing that I think a lot about is, and it, it sort of dovetails in a lot of ways with the research, is what I might think of as the art of medicine. And it relates to this idea of clinical guidelines and sort of cookbook strategies. So imagine you have three physicians. The first is a doctor who has no idea what the clinical guidelines say about a particular condition. And so they just sort of rely on their own experience. They rely on what they learned back in medical school and residency a long time ago, but they are not able to keep up to date on the most recent guidelines. So that doctor is going to have certain outcomes. Then you've got another doctor who's the polar opposite, who is up to date on all of the clinical guidelines. I mean, they just know them really well and they stick to the guidelines. They never deviate. Okay, that's the second type of doctor. And that doctor is going to have some outcomes associated with the way that they practice. And then you've got a third doctor who, let's say 70% of the time, they follow the guidelines. They know the guidelines. So 70% of the time, if you looked at their practice patterns, they would be consistent with the guidelines. But 30% of the time, they're not. And as a researcher and as a clinician, I'm thinking to myself, right, which of those three doctors would I expect to have the best outcomes? And I think a lot of people in medicine would point to doctor number two, because doctor number two follows the guidelines exclusively. But my instinct would be that doctor three might actually be better, because doctor three knows the guidelines. It's not that they don't know the guidelines. They know them. And there are instances where they deviate from the guidelines with some intention. There's a reason why they did that. And I've got to believe that what they're doing is using their training as a doctor, the experience what they learn from their colleagues, what they learn from other places, supplanting that information with what's in the guidelines and saying, all right, do I need to be thinking about this third of patients differently? And it is an empirical question that no one has looked at this question of whether or not the phenotype of the first doctor, second doctor, or third doctor, which one delivers better outcomes. But we as a profession are pushing us towards doctor two. And I think what we want to do is push ourselves towards doctor three, make sure people know the guidelines and the evidence, but also give them some latitude to see how the art of medicine sort of unfolds. We talk a lot about this phenomenon where it's sort of data, as we think about this idea of data culture and enabling people with data, there's this role that data can take you up to a certain point, mm -hmm. but ultimately human judgment has to take over and decide whether or not the data is relevant or applicable in a particular context. And Obviously, the human body and even the environment that people exist in are so complex that you can't always capture the richness of sort of reality in a protocol. Maybe switch to the other side of this equation and think about the people who are showing up at hospitals during marathons or trying to get care during COVID, or I guess you can't really decide when you get a heart attack, but like are trying to you know sort of get care at these moments. How does this affect the consumption of healthcare from your perspective? I mean, we're all consumers of healthcare. How do we think about what we should know or do in yeah. these instances? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that's like one thing that people ask me a lot about these research findings. And often the findings, for lack of better words, are kind of cute. Oh, it's interesting that people do poorly when there's a marathon, but what do you do about it? Or it's interesting that people do better during the dates of cardiology meetings, but what do you do about it? The solution is not to ban marathons. The solution is not to have cardiology meetings all year round. That's not the solution. And I guess what I would say is there's two things that we can take from it. One is 
sort of a scientific point, which is a large part of medicine is designed to understand a couple of questions. The first question is, how quickly do we need to act in any given situation? If your child is at home and it's late at night and they've got a fever and a headache, do you have to call the pediatrician immediately? Do you wait an hour? Do you take them to the emergency room? What do you do? But you can never get an answer to that sort of question in a data-driven way because you can't randomize people to say, oh, okay, here's a thousand people who have chest pain. Half of you go to the emergency room right now. Half of you stick it out for an hour or two, listen to a podcast, and then go to the emergency room. You'd never do that, right? The marathon is interesting because it sort of gives us that natural experiment where we can actually replicate that experiment for any number of medical conditions and say, are here the ones where minutes do matter? And here are the ones where minutes do not matter, and you could actually take your time, but get at that in a data-driven way. So that would be sort of the insight that you get from that kind of study. The cardiology meeting study, what it tells me is that sometimes we do too much in people. And what's the take-home for a patient or a family member of someone? The take-home, I think, is whenever someone you know, is suggesting you to do something, whether it be to take a new medication or to receive a new procedure or a procedure generally, I think it's always good to have a discussion about what are the risks, what are the benefits, and am I the type of person as a patient who this is for the doctor, a no-brainer, where like, you got to get this done? Or is this a question where the doctor might say, you know what, I could kind of go either way on it. And if the doctor says to you that they could go either way on it, it's maybe something where you actually think to yourself, maybe I do go either way on it. Maybe I, I don't do it. And I think that what my work has shown is that doctors, when they're given that discretion they do come to the right decision. You know, in the cardiology meetings paper, we know that cardiovascular procedures are on average beneficial. We know that from clinical trials. So how could it be the case that if you don't do procedures, that people do better? The only way it can be true is if those people who we are not doing the procedures on now, they were the ones who are sort of at the margin. They were going to be harmed. Their benefit is outweighed by the risk. And guess what? The cardiologists, if push comes to shove, they are figuring that out. So how do we leverage that sort of innate learning and the expertise of the doctor? Well, maybe that's just by having patients ask questions about whether or not they need this particular thing to happen. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. You have another example in your book with regards to children with summer birthdays and they're experiencing higher health risks and ADHD. Tell us about that example, because that example strikes me as not falling within this idea of sort of minutes matter, nor within yes. this context of like understanding whether or not there should be intervention or not. What's the learning from that particular case? And maybe also start by telling the audience what that case is. So the general finding is that Every state has a cutoff for school entry. And so in, in my state, Massachusetts, if you are five years old by September 1, then you can enter kindergarten. If you turn five on September 3rd, then you have to wait a year to enter kindergarten. And the finding is that kids who have August birthdays are about 30% more likely to be diagnosed and treated medically for ADHD compared to kids with September birthdays. And the reason why is that the August-born kids, they're almost a year younger than their peers in the same kindergarten or first or second grade class. And so when the teacher observes some fidgetiness or hyperactivity, some of these kids, the perception is that this might be ADHD, not that this child is just a year younger relative to his or her peers. So that's the finding. Then the question is, all right, what do you do about it? Well, I think one is it speaks to the subjectivity of diagnosis and how to show that overdiagnosis might occur 
and then to quantify how often subjective factors might be happening. So if this were like a 2% effect, that's very different than a 30% effect because it suggests that there is actually a lot of discretion going on in that diagnosis. And in areas where there's a lot of discretion, that's a data-driven place where you say, look, maybe we need to close out this discretion. Maybe this is too much discretion that's being applied to the diagnosis. There are some, I think, tangible to-dos that parents and doctors could do. So for example, if someone is discussing the diagnosis of ADHD and your child has an August birthday and you're in a state which has a September 1 cutoff, I think it would be very reasonable to say, recognizing that there's a lot of research that now shows this, is this something where we should pull the trigger, make a diagnosis, start treatment now? Or should we give it three to six months and let that relative age difference sort of collapse a little bit and see where this child ends up? Same thing could be true on the doctor's end. The doctor is literally clicking a diagnosis of ADHD. The computer, the electronic health record can say, are you aware that this child has an August birthday and research shows this? That might just give them a moment of pause to pull back and say, yeah, you know what? I am kind of marginal on this diagnosis right here. Again, this is only for those cases where it's not black and white. But I think doctors have the ability to figure out where are the black and white cases and where are the ones where it's a little bit more gray. All of these instances strike me as an example where AI within the EMR or at least in the context of the EMR could be helpful. I mean, I have multiple friends, one of which is working on a company to summarize the EMR and particularly the sort of unstructured notes and read back to the physician what's happened in these complicated cases. Another case where folks are trying to use AI in order to be able to guide practice and the way they put it, practice at the top at their license. You know, is this something that you see a lot of hope and excitement in? Are you more pessimistic about the AI in medical practice? How do you see this evolving and how much have you considered the impact? I think it could be helpful in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's areas that are more pattern recognition based, so imaging, electrocardiograms, that sort of data, eye imaging. Those are places where it's really pattern recognition that's so important. And if the physician doesn't recognize the pattern, then AI will be helpful. There's also pattern recognition problems where I think AI can be helpful in a way that we don't yet appreciate. And what I mean by that is there are certain features that we look for in elements of data. So for example, if we have a thousand or a hundred thousand electrocardiograms, EKGs of the heart, there are certain features that indicate the likelihood of certain diseases. And we know those things and we know to look for them. Whether we look for them or not, it's a different story. And that's where a machine could help. But there are also features in the electrocardiograms that we do not currently know are indicative of some disease. And an algorithm could elucidate that. It could find out, look, okay, we compare a million people with the disease and many million people without the disease. We compare the electrocardiograms and we identify features of the electrocardiogram that humans previously had not even known were signatures, if you will. So I think that's another place where AI can be very useful. And then the other place which I think it can be helpful is in also in the diagnostic process where you have a patient that comes to you, they have a set of symptoms that they describe, and they have a huge medical history that comes before that. And that can include past hospitalizations, doctor's visits, prior medications that they've been on, done well with, failed, laboratory imaging, all this information, some of which a doctor would be able to look through, but much of which a doctor cannot look through. I see a lot of opportunity for AI to say, all right, this is the set of symptoms that this person has. With all this information that we know about this person, here's the differential diagnosis of conditions that you should consider. And the doctor can then look at that 
and say, all right, well, here are things that I had considered and here are things that I had not considered. And here are things that I had considered, but I didn't really weight them high enough. But, oh, wow, there's a data point right here that suggests that this should actually be higher than I had previously placed it in my mind. So one of the core things we do in medicine is diagnosis. And diagnosis relies on information that you have available to make a decision. And that means you have to have the knowledge to think about all the things that are possible as a differential diagnosis. And that's a place where a machine, I think, could do a really good job of helping doctors. And I'm sure you get pitched this all the time. I mean, given your role as faculty at Harvard and bridging the divide of sort of behavior as a population, I would imagine that you get pitched on tons of technology. And you write a little bit about this idea of sort of innovation medicine. The thing that's interesting about innovation is that there's technologies at this point for everything in the galaxy. There's a new data tool being born every day. I'm sure the same is true for physician and the amount of technology that they get. How do you correlate sort of outcomes of these technologies with the actual innovation itself? And how do you think about that work? Because I would imagine that people are always trying to sell something or get something new or come up with a new idea. What can you do to measure sort of what the outcome of these things are? It's very difficult. In the standard way that we do this for medical technologies like drugs or devices is we do randomized trials where we compare people who receive the technology versus not and look at an outcome that we care about. Often that's difficult to do, and so we we do observational approaches to answering those questions. Often those are not that well done, and so one thing I've advocated for is to try to use some of these more natural experiment methods to try to establish causality when it comes to new interventions. But at the end of the day, I think that there has to be some demonstrable outcome benefit to any technology. One thing that is quite interesting is that we have put a premium on the innovativeness of the technology. So there could be a new molecule that has attacks a pathway that has never been attacked before. Well, if that molecule doesn't improve life expectancy or improve quality of life, then there's not a lot of value to me in that innovation, even though it's it's certainly innovative. I care more about whether or not it impacts patients' lives. And the correlator to that is that you could have a medication which does not appear to be that quote-unquote innovative at all, because it's just a reboot in some respect, of other medications, but it's taken in a way that people are more likely to be adherent to, or you give it once every week or once every month. Those sorts of technologies are sometimes poo-pooed on, but they could be very valuable because what ultimately matters is the outcome of whether or not a person gets better when they're on that medication, not how innovative it is. But I think, you know, this is also a problem when it comes to sort of data-driven interventions as well, because there's a lot of interest in sort of AI and I'll just call it non-medical technologies or non-life science technologies. And the key there is I think you've got to demonstrate that there's some outcome benefit. Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think that idea of sort of innovation for innovation's sake, I think takes over in many cases in terms of how people think, but then looking at the population-based outcomes tends to be really hard to do. So then you look at a procedural input versus looking at the end state output. You get into some, you know, I guess, in this day and age, what feels like somewhat touchy territory where you have also done research where you've talked about whether or not political party affiliation affects standards of care. And so you've written an article there. You've also done some work to sort of understand how affirmative action bans hurt or help. I guess in your case, you sort of make a conclusion for hurt health equity. Tell us about some of this work, because even though I know people would like to believe that physicians and medical care is blind, if you will, in its application, sounds like it's not, or at least in some cases not. Yeah, I think what I try to do is in the work, 
try to steer clear from some of the uh, political undertones of the work. So, for example, I'll pick on the affirmative action one in particular. We had a study that looked at what is the impact of affirmative action bans on representation of underrepresented minorities. Does it change? And when a ban comes into a place, you do see a reduction in underrepresented minorities in medical schools. Now, directionally, that shouldn't be too surprising. I think the core question is, what's the magnitude of the effect? Is it small? Is it large? I think we find an effect that's pretty meaningful in its effect size. And in that work, we talk about, all right, well, why might you care about affirmative action bans? And there's a lot of different reasons people may or may not care about them. They may care about them from an equity perspective. And I would say I have my own beliefs on that. But generally, my own view is that that's for the world to decide, right? Like you, you give them what the relationships are, what, you know, what the effects of various interventions are, and let them decide, let people decide whether or not they think it's important from a social perspective to adopt a certain policy or not. But the other point that we've made is, aside from any equity consideration, there is possibly also what I would call an efficiency consideration, meaning there is pretty good work that suggests that if you have black patients, they may get better care or better outcomes if treated by black doctors. Now, there's all sorts of ways you could take that sort of finding and say, okay, well, why do we need to have black doctors to treat black patients? Aren't white doctors as, just as good? Or the same thing could do, be true for male and female doctors. And all those things might be true. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's, it is an empirical question, right? You can have an opinion about what should and should not happen or what things may or may not look like. But there are questions that you can actually answer with data. And people have looked at this issue. If you look at patients and you essentially quasi-randomize them to doctors who look more like them as opposed to more different from them, do we observe better outcomes? And the answer is that we do observe better outcomes. So there might be an equity consideration that people talk about, and I would agree with that. But there might also be sort of an efficiency consideration as well. Can we improve health outcomes by allocating resources in a different way? And that's sort of a different perspective. And that is a little bit more sort of politics or policy agnostic. So even in the controversial areas where we, you know, sometimes dabble, I do try to say, look, this is a diverse country. People have a lot of different views. And I certainly don't try to let my views influence the kinds of implications that we find in our work. I wouldn't consider myself to be an advocate in that kind of way, though I do see why it's important. Yeah, those second order effects are hard to call. And we call them, I guess, sort of externalities and in economics, and they're difficult to predict, and I guess necessarily so in these complex systems. In all of these findings, you're trying to bring them back into the world of healthcare. How have people reacted to your work? On the face of it, all seems quite obvious, straight, quite straightforward. One would want to make change. On the flip, at least in my experience, and I think in common experience, healthcare is remarkably difficult to change because the systems are so rooted in lots of incentives and history and background and blah, blah, blah. What have you found in terms of the reception? Yeah, it depends on the type of question that we are looking at. I mean, I think the two types of feedback that I get, so the positive feedback is the work is very interesting. It's sort of creative. It's clever. It doesn't lack for creativity or cleverness. I mean, that part I, I think we've got down. For applicability, that I think is a place where there might be some debate. And what I try to say is, look, I don't consider myself to be building policy. Like if you want to develop policy or evaluate policy, you evaluate policy and there's ways to do that. I think of this work as almost more sort of basic science. It helps us understand how doctors think, how nurses think, how patients think, 
and how various factors in the healthcare system might affect outcomes in ways that we hadn't thought about before. That's where I really see my role and what excites me about this kind of work. But I do that recognizing that often there's not a direct policy implication because I'm not literally testing policy A versus policy B. Then there's another strand of work, which we kind of just talked about, and I'll give a specific example. We've done a lot of work on pay disparities between men and women in medicine. And there's a huge literature in economics about the gender pay gap. And one of the things that has struck me as being quite interesting about our field in medicine is that unlike most other occupations, we actually have very detailed data on what are the things that might be inputs to someone's compensation. So in medicine, for example, the work that we've done, we know where a person trained. Did they go to a prestigious or less prestigious medical school? What is their specialty? Where do they train in that specialty? How old are they? How many procedures or what is the clinical volume of patients that they see every year? What's their insurance mix? Do they have malpractice citations against them? Do they write scientific articles? If so, how many? Where are they published? Good journals, not as good journals. Do they run clinical trials? Have they got NIH funding? We've got an enormous set of factors that we can control for, which, you know, in most other occupations, you wouldn't be able to do that. Like, how would you figure out whether a data scientist, what is a quote-unquote data scientist doing? What is their productivity? How would you measure that? Here, we actually have tools to measure the productivity of these workers, and we still find these large differences. And when we publish a study that says holding 15 different factors constant, females get paid about 15% less than men in medicine, there's sort of two camps. One camp is very like, okay, we know this exists and this is an important thing to show. And another camp is like, well, there's all sorts of other reasons why this could be true. And most of them we actually account for in, in the work itself. And so I approach that question, not from a political perspective or a equity perspective to say, I believe men or women should be paid equally. I have feelings on that, but that's sort of not where I kind of sit. Here's what I, I come in. I was like, this is the data. Here's what you see. You should make of it what you will. But we shouldn't ascribe these differences to things that are not, not drivers. Even though you don't have a political motivation and anybody who is in the realm of science would say, look, this is just cause and effect. I've got a data set. I come to a conclusion. I've got a data set. I come to an insight. I've controlled for these variables. The implication and the output of this work can be political in its result because if one were to sort of try to close that gap, some men would get paid less and some women would yeah. get paid more. And there's, you know, I mean, that there is a splitting up high element of it. And I think you find that a lot in medicine. I feel like, particularly with insurance companies, and even in, in some cases, you can see physicians that people are reticent to to change. What have you found in terms of being able to break through those walls in your own experience? What's worked for you? What hasn't? And How do you face the challenges? One thing that I'm sure you've you've thought about, and I've thought about it a lot, which is in the work where, for example, we show that female doctors get paid less. We had a paper with Ashish Jha and a few others, Yusuke Sugawa, years ago, which showed that female doctors in the hospital setting had better outcomes. And the pushback that we got from that, there's a lot of positive feedback, but the negative feedback that we got was, well, could you have published this paper if you showed that men had better outcomes? And that's a reasonable question to which I would say, well, I don't know if you could have published that paper. We would have had to check and see. It might have been publishable in an economic journal and perhaps not in a medical journal where I think that there are more sort of ingrained beliefs about what a medical journal will support versus not. But what I push back on, as I said, I totally get their point 
about whether or not this paper would have appeared had it found something different. But in addition to that, maybe you should try and outline 12 different other things that are incorrect about the finding itself. And that's where I think when someone says, all right, this is politically convenient to show this, that's why it gets published, and would you have found something different if there's a different result? I totally buy that, and I think that is an issue. But you have to also attack the question on its substance. And if that's the only thing that you have to hang your hat against the study, that to me is not a very strong position to be in. A much stronger position to be in is to say, yes, I think that is true, but also there's these other issues with the study, which I think limit the way that it's been interpreted. Yeah, I mean, that criticism feels like a pretty obvious deflection from having to discuss the realities of the finding. I mean, yeah, you know, okay, well, let's say men have better outcomes than women, then why don't we go prove that? And let's then decide what we want to do about it and where and when that's true. Although, I don't know, having been a recipient of medical care, I'd be surprised if that were case. And it could be in some cases, yes, some cases, no. I mean, it's it's ultimately an empirical question. I think, I mean, this is sort of a gestalt here, but I feel like medicine is probably more driven by beliefs about results and what we should see than I would like it to be. Economics has a lot of faults, but one of the things that I think it does pretty well is it sort of is intellectually very open to the types of findings that might come out of a research study whether they're quote-unquote controversial as not. And you could never publish a study that shows using the same methods that current studies have, that coffee is not associated with XYZ, or that peanuts or quinoa or red wine is not associated with XYZ. It is a better finding, for lack of better words, to show that it is positively associated with some health outcome. And I think that's a problem that is not unique to medicine, but we see it a little bit more than I would like to see. Do physicians in their work, do you find that when they get these data sets, when they get sort of this technological capability to indicate that they might be biased, do you find that people are generally receptive in their practice taking on these tools? Like what has been your experience in getting people to actually use data more in their work and particularly physicians? I think part of the problem, there's a number of different issues about why these sorts of studies even exist in the first place. I think, again, economics has a lot of things that it needs to work on. So I don't want to hold economics up as a gold standard of how science should be conducted. But one thing that it does pretty well is that it it takes serious the issue of cause and effect in, in most of the work that economists try to do. And that is not the case in most medical studies. Outside of randomized control trials, that's essentially what they're designed to do. But there's this whole swath of studies that we would call observational studies, where there's no semblance of cause and effect that you could reasonably take from any of these studies. And yet they get published and often in good places. And you kind of have to say, well, why are they getting published? Is it because the researchers don't know the methods, don't know why the particular questions that they're asking or approach that they're taking are problematic? Yeah, I think that's probably some of it. You know, they don't, they may not have the training, but also it probably falls somewhat on the journals and the journals probably do have the training to be able to suss things out. But Journals have a different set of incentives. They might respond to what the public is interested in knowing, which is the only rationale I could ever think of for why we see so many low-quality nutritional studies in even the most preeminent journals of medicine. Like It doesn't make sense why we'd see these pretty bad studies get published in really good places. And the only thing I can think of is that either A, the journal editors aren't aware of the problems, which I do not think is true. I think that they know the problems. But there is a demand that they're responding to, and that is a appetite for this kind of information. Yeah. Your work is really interesting to me because to the extent that we're trying to build data cultures and 
institutions and organizations, and people are trying to do that work. Doctors are a particularly interesting population because there's kind of two sides to the data culture coin. One of them is this idea of how do we get doctors, people in general, to go use more data in their work? And what are the barriers to data literacy? What are the barriers to using data as a habit? And that strikes me as some interesting ground because there's, even though you would think scientist by nature, I mean, all doctors are fundamentally scientists, or at least in Western medicine, you have that interesting behavioral pattern. On the flip, the other thing that you've done a little bit of work on is measuring productivity of a doctor. And so the other part of building a data culture is like, well, how do you build performance-based measurement? And measuring performance of a doctor can be pretty challenging. What have you found as you've studied some of that work? Because I can imagine there's near-term outcomes and there's long-term outcomes and there's outcomes you see and don't see. I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's very difficult. The way I think about it is, first, we have to figure out what we mean by quality. What is it that determines quality? And there's a lot of frameworks for thinking about what quality care looks like. So it should be safe, meaning you're not going to get the wrong leg operated on. It should be effective, meaning that if you have something that's ailing you, you get better after it being done. And there's other kind of domains of quality that we care about. So first, how do we define quality? Then the next question is, well, how do we measure it? And We measure it often either by looking at the processes that go into it. So if someone comes in with a pneumonia or an infection, do they get antibiotics? That's a process measure of quality. And if they do, that's a check mark in the good direction. If they don't, that's a ding. And the other way to think about quality is to measure the actual outcome itself. Did the person die from a pneumonia? Were they hospitalized for an extended period of time because the pneumonia was not adequately treated? Those sorts of things. That you know, already is complicated to do. And it's not only because of a data issue, because now we do have data to be able to answer those types of questions. Did you get XYZ? Did you live or die? How long were you hospitalized? Did you come in and out of the hospital? Lots of different ways to measure those sorts of outcomes. One of the fundamental problems that we have to deal with is not really a data problem, but more what I'd call an empirical problem is, how do we know that the quality differences are a result of something that the doctor, the nurse, or the hospital did versus something that would have happened anyway because of the type of patient that was being treated. So if we observe that someone has bad outcomes from a pneumonia, is it because the doctors failed to do certain things or because the patients failed to do certain things? Or is it because there's other risk factors that we couldn't adequately account for that explain that finding? And that's where I think the rubber hits the road is trying to figure out What are the things to measure? And then how do we measure them in a way that is causally relatable to the unit of observation that we care about, meaning the doctor, the hospital, the nurse, the therapist, whatever it is. And I think that's where we require really good data, which is where data companies are doing a great job, but we also require some level of creativity. It's not just plug and chug. We see a patient seen by this provider and we compute their outcomes, and oh, there you go, that's the quality of that provider. There's got to be some attention and thought paid to how do we know that what we observe is because of the provider versus any number of other factors. And there is some creativity that's required to answer that question. Yeah. Where do these sort of productivity measures and outcome measures come up? I mean, where do you see them now being most applied? And Who's asking for it? Is it hospitals that are trying to measure the quality of their provider care? Is it the insurance companies that are trying to measure whether or not they should be believing or trusting what a provider tells them? It is coming up everywhere. It's coming up in those two domains. It comes up from the federal government, from a regulatory perspective, the CMS, big payer of care, Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services. They want to know whether or not hospitals are delivering high quality care. So there's a lot of interest 
in measuring the quality of care. There's a lot of interest in paying for better quality care. It's not a crazy thing to think that if there's poor quality, you don't want to pay for it. If there's good quality, you want to pay for it. I think the biggest problem is figuring out what do we mean by good quality and then how do we accurately measure it so that it actually is a byproduct of the activity or the organization that we're trying to incentivize. And that's where I think people who are critical of quality measurement, that's where they sort of come in. And then there's just sort of a more macro level question, which is we have been able to measure things a lot better in the last 20 years than ever before. And quality measurement as a field, as a discipline has taken on a life that is very different in the last 20 years than T minus 20 to T minus 40 years ago. And we can ask, well, what have we seen as a result of that? We're measuring quality much more. Do we see quality getting better in a lot of substantive ways? And I think quality experts might disagree on that. I think a fair number of very esteemed quality experts would say, we've measured the hell out of quality, but I don't know that quality has actually improved so much. And I think also depends on what your, to your point, ultimately what your definition of quality is. I mean, you can define quality as patient satisfaction, long-term outcomes, short-term outcomes, cost of the visit or cost of the care provided relative to the outcome. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it. And I think what's interesting about your work is to say sort of all that's great, but at least you should try, or at least there's a ability to have that conversation. And even if the perfect measure doesn't exist, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good which I think is true, frankly, of medicine and true for most human endeavors and outcomes that are complicated and complex. So you've written this amazing book. You're obviously treating patients, practicing medicine, doing research. What's next on the horizon for you? And what are you looking at in your work? Yeah, a lot more of the above. (laughs) That's sort of how I spend my time. I do research and I'm lucky that I'm able to ask questions that I personally find interesting. So the, the book I mentioned a couple of the findings, the marathons and mortality, the cardiology meetings, what happens when cardiologists go to town. I'm attracted to those questions because they're just quirky and clever. And I'm like, huh, I, I really want to know the answer to that question. Then we spend some time to try to unpack, well, why might this matter for healthcare beyond just the initial finding? But what really drives me is I'm just interested in this stuff. It's fun for me and I'm lucky to be able to do it. So I'll continue to teach, continue to do research, see patients. And do podcasts. And do podcasts. Well, listen, thank you a ton for coming on. You're one of the many people who were fortunate enough to call it a data radical. And I think the curiosity that you mentioned is sort of exactly, I think, what everybody who listens to this podcast is going for. So I appreciate your time and look forward to having you back on at some point in the future. Thank you. I appreciate it. When it comes to practicing the science of medicine, many consider data to be the be-all and end-all. But Bapu explained that he sees three types of physicians. Physician 1 is unfamiliar with a particular condition and relies solely on their experience. Physician 2 never deviates from the guidelines. And Physician 3 is a 70-30 split. They follow the guidelines 70% of the time and rely upon their experience for the other 30%. Bapu believes that the technique of Physician 3 can lead to a culture of data and insights. Those who know the guidelines and are integrating their training, learnings from colleagues, and medical know-how deliver better patient outcomes. That's true of medicine and likely true for most knowledge-oriented professions in our world. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Bapu for joining today. I'm Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. Data Radicals, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. 
Does data governance get a bad rap at your business? Today, Alation customers wield governance to drive business value, increase efficiencies, and reduce risk. Learn how to reposition data governance as a business enabler, not a roadblock. Download the white paper, Data Governance is Valuable, Moving to an Offensive Strategy, at alation.com slash offense. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash offense.